in our last episode. All three Shelton brothers were sentenced to 25 years in prison for the mail robbery in Collinsville. Meanwhile, the body of patrolman Lori Price was found. Charlie Berger was arrested at his home, and Arlie Boswell was attacked and threatened by an anonymous letter. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 23, Part 2 Now that its most famous citizen was back in circulation, Saline County also had its share of excitement. As usual, the event took place in the dark. Early in the pre-dawn of March 22nd, less than a week after the attempt on Boswell's life, Machine Gun Charlie noticed four men splashing gasoline on the east side of his Harrisburg home. Before the firebugs got a chance to light a match and illuminate the west end of Harrisburg, Berger emptied the contents of two revolvers at the men, sending them fleeing toward their automobile. Then, before they could make good their escape, he brought out his faithful machine gun, possibly the same one that had made Sheriff Turner something of a laughingstock, and proceeded to perforate both men in their car, with better luck with the latter. Still, one of the crew who had been left behind unobserved by the irate gang leader walked into a restaurant uptown and hired a cab driver to take him back to Franklin County. It was reported that his hand was almost severed. That same night saw the burning of a roadhouse south of West Frankfurt. Picking through the ruins the next morning, authorities found a still and 19 barrels of mash. Anyone who thought that the removal of the Sheltons would provide a period of calm had sadly misjudged the character of Egypt. For his part, Berger was worried more about what Cruz might reveal than about another attempt at arson. Stack's announcement on March 18th that more arrests in the Price case would occur the following week only increased his fears. Taking into account his precarious position, the gang leader had nothing to lose and only time to gain by talking with Stack himself. The close call of the night before prompted Charlie to take a room in a hotel in Harrisburg, and it was there that he, Connie Ritter, and possibly Scariel Thompson, Berger's attorney, met with Stack and five of his men. Cruz, Berger explained, was a former employee at Shady Rest who enjoyed his work so much that he begged to become a bona fide gang member, but had been denied the honor. Merely for revenge, he continued, Cruz might be framing him and his men. For two hours, Stack and his investigators listened patiently, as Berger's plausible but somehow unconvincing account was put forth. Then they left for Carbondale. On the day following this conference, Sheriff Coleman, whose reputation for being close-mouthed around reporters was highly deserved, was in Danville with a prisoner, probably a bootlegger. Someone introduced him to one of the federal court commissioners. Off his guard for once, Coleman observed that he knew who killed Lori Price and was pretty sure that he knew who killed Mrs. Price. Intrigued, the commissioner made the mistake of admitting that he was also a newspaper reporter who would like to know more. Except for a long and studied glare, Coleman made no response. 
For Berger and for Newman, who was working as a night watchman in Long Beach, California, it was a time of wait and see. The date for the Adams trial had not yet been announced. The inquest into the death of Lori Price was not yet completed. It had been Roy Martin's plan to let Harry Thomason get to know life in the Pontiac Reformatory for several weeks before springing on him the extent of his own information. The presentation of this information was as important as the timing was. To enhance his performance, he decided to take along John Rogers, one of the three post-dispatch reporters, who had extracted from Newman, Wooten, and Ritter a telling, if not always accurate, account of gang activities. Together, Rogers and Martin had to convince Harry that they knew everything. Once this had been accomplished, they had to further impress upon the young man the idea that by confessing, he would not automatically be placing the rope around his own neck. Were he to plead guilty, it was most likely that Judge Miller would sentence him to life imprisonment, which meant that he could be paroled in 20 years. If he did not cooperate and they could prove him guilty, he might very well be hanged despite his youth. Although their argument was impressive, Martin and Rogers had additional assistance in winning over the young criminal. Thomason's own suspicions were as black as the cinders of Shady Rest. When Elmo and the others were murdered and burned in the cabin, the public seemed to think that the Sheltons were responsible. But knowing the Burger gang as he did, Harry had for weeks pondered the possibility that Burger or Newman had ordered and perhaps participated in the killings. Since he was in jail at the time of the tragedy, his information was only second-hand, but one informant was especially convincing. He also knew who had the most to gain from Elmo's death, and it wasn't Carl Shelton. When his two visitors put forth their account of Joe Adams's killing, Harry responded by giving one of his own. Both versions were essentially the same. In return for his confession, Rogers promised not to release the story until after Harry appeared before Judge Charles Miller to plead guilty to the murder. Somehow, Berger learned of Martin's visit. He was worried. He called Harry's brother Ray in West Frankfurt and told him to come to Harrisburg for a talk. At his home, Berger gave the young man $24 for expenses and told him to go to Pontiac to warn Harry that Martin should be told nothing. Tell him to take care of the inside and I'll take care of the outside. If he don't keep his mouth shut, he'll get the same as I do, and they'll probably hang the both of us." Ray Thomason testified later that at the time, he wasn't even aware of his brother's involvement in Adams' killing. He did as he was told, but the trip came too late. At the final session of the Price Inquest on April 9th, Dr. Paul B. Rabinek, the coroner, stated that while an open verdict had been reached, Evidence gathered in their investigation would likely be presented to the grand jury, which was scheduled to meet the following week. There was certainly nothing in this terse announcement to bring cheer to Charlie Berger, but one thing stood out. No one had been charged. A few days later, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the paper Berger had sold as a boy, did its best to keep him on his toes by announcing that he and certain of his gang would soon be charged with the abduction and murder of the Prices. The allegations stunned the accused as well as Stack and his investigators. In Marion the day after the story broke, John Stack vehemently denied the truth of that statement. Obviously, he said, 
If they had evidence that Berger had committed the crime, he would be under arrest at that very moment. The sad fact was that they did have some leads, but nothing that would hold. Reading this in their evening newspapers, the tradesmen, the miners, and the farmers could only shake their heads and wonder if crimes in southern Illinois were ever solved. Chapter 24 Burger Unsatisfied If, in more than a month's freedom on bond, Burger had dreams of continuing his existence as before, they were dashed on April 29th, when he was arrested and placed in the Benton Jail. His second setback that day was the announcement by Shelton attorneys Harold J. Bandy and Edmund Burke that during a three-hour conversation with a conscience-stricken Harvey Dungy in Springfield the day before, they had learned that Dungy had not seen either Carl or Bernie Shelton just prior to the Collinsville robbery. He had lied on the witness stand, Dungy said, because Berger and Newman had threatened to kill him if he didn't. Even as he had walked down from the third floor quarters, where the witnesses were kept under guard to the courtroom itself on the second floor, he had debated with himself whether or not to testify. But the image of the two machine guns Berger kept close by had been the deciding factor. Countering with a charge of his own, Berger said Dungy had been promised $10,000 by the Sheltons to recant his testimony. Berger further charged that Dungy now led a gang of his own, that they headquartered at Dungy's Dew Drop Inn near West Frankfurt, and that it was this gang that had tried to burn the Burger House a few weeks earlier. Helpful though it was in winning the Sheltons a new trial and their freedom, Dungy's affidavit was not particularly damaging to Burger. but the day following his arrest came what must have seemed his finishing blow. At Benton, in Judge Charles Miller's courtroom, Harry Thomason confessed, that he and his brother Elmo had killed Joe Adams at the behest of Berger and Newman. Following his confession, Thomason was sentenced to life imprisonment. His story, as related to the newspapers, was that on the night of December 11th, 1926, the two Thomasons had driven to Shady Rest in a stolen Ford Roadster. Between the hours of 9 and 10 p.m., Art Newman called them into the west room of the cabin. Present also in the room were Charlie Berger and Connie Ritter. After the door was closed behind them, Harry and Elmo were seated, and Berger informed them that he had a job he wanted them to do the following day. Some indication of the nature of that job came when Newman asked Harry if he had ever killed anyone. The young gangster replied, No, Art. I never had enough against anyone to kill him. As though he had not heard, Berger said, We picked you two boys to kill Joe Adams. Nothing to it, said Newman quickly, adding that they would be provided with an automobile, a driver, and two pistols, and that a letter purportedly from Carl Shelton was to be presented to Adams. The Thomason brothers' stolen Ford was first considered for the getaway car, but Berger decided a Chrysler would serve better, adding that it should be burned at the first opportunity following the killing. After Highland was called in, Berger turned to him and said, Jew, we want you to drive the Chrysler car tomorrow to kill Joe Adams. On the basis of Newman's crack that Izzy the Jew lacked the guts for such a task, Highland replied, I don't know, Charlie. I'll think it over. Harry insisted he had to care for some livestock and that Elmo, too, had errands to run. Not about to let them both leave, 
Berger said Harry could do his feeding, but Elmo must stay. Before leaving, however, Harry was told that if he did not return, someone would be sent for him. His chores finished, Harry arrived about 2 a.m. at the residence of Bessie Rhodes in Benton, where he boarded with his girlfriend Pearl Phelps. His brothers, Elmo and Pinckney, lived with them. Around 11 o'clock that morning, Elmo and Ray Highland arrived, picked up Harry and Pinckney, and then drove on to Marion, where Pinckney got out. The others drove on to Shady Rest, arriving there about 1 p.m. In the basement, they found Newman, Ritter, and some others. After following Newman and Ritter to an upstairs room, the two brothers were soon joined by Ray Highland, who was carrying a 45. This ought to do it, hadn't it? He asked. Newman said it would, but, being a big-time gangster, he ordered Highland to take the pistol to the basement, split the bullets, and rub the grooves with garlic. While Highland was applying this final remedy, Ritter was trying to disguise his handwriting while writing the note. After Highland came back with the pistol and its prize bullets, the 45 was handed to Harry. Elmo already had a 38. After the deed was accomplished, Newman continued, they would all meet at the junction of routes 2 and 14 west of Christopher, and from there drive south to Big Kate Williams' place at Dowell. They would end up, he said, in Harrisburg. There remained only the toast. Each of the Thomasons and Highland downed two glasses of whiskey. The occasion may well have called for the pure stuff, the Egyptian corn extolled by journalist W.A.S. Douglas, as a drink capable of... Making a man or boy ready and willing to step up to a man-eating tiger and attempt to pull its toenails. The soon-to-be killers needed every drop and then some. The empty glasses were then set aside. Art and Bessie Newman, Connie Ritter, and his mall Ollie Potts, left in a closed Chrysler. Highland's car, similar to Newman's except for the mud spatters on it, followed. Their destination was an auto repair shop north of Marion. When they got there, Newman and Ritter bought gasoline and a fan belt for the muddied Chrysler. While the fan belt was being fitted into place, Newman again reminded the three of the point of the rendezvous and, almost as an afterthought, urged Highland to drive carefully. Many miles would be covered before the day's end, if all went according to plan. Newman and his companions drove back toward Marion, caught Route 13 at the intersection, and drove west. Meanwhile, the apprentice killers and their driver were soon into Franklin County, heading toward West City. East of the Adams home, the car slowed to a stop, and the boys got out. Slowly, Highland drove onto a block west of the house and parked the car. In his court appearance, Thomason gave a terse but telling account of the killing. When we reached West City, Elmo and I went to Adam's house, leaving Highland sitting in the car. We knocked on the door and then Adams came. Elmo handed him the note, and while he was reading it, I shot him twice with the revolver which I had hidden up my sleeve. Elmo then shot him once. We then ran back to the car where Highland was waiting and drove away. Eighteen miles west of Benton, they arrived, as planned, at the junction of routes 2 and 14 at Mulkey Town, but they did not find Newman. They drove north two miles, then turned around. At Dowell, three miles south of Mulkey Town, they pulled in at the roadhouse of Big Kate Williams, and there, waiting to greet and congratulate them, were the Newmans, Ritter, and Ollie Potts. 
After various weapons were taken into the roadhouse, including the two machine guns, the two cars were driven into a garage. As if the small arsenal already at hand was not sufficient, either Newman or Ritter handed Elmo a high-powered rifle and told him to use it if the wrong people dropped by. Armed to the teeth, Highland and the Thomasons were to wait until Berger arrived that evening with further instructions. They would be taken care of, Newman said, as he and his party were preparing to leave. Big Kate was even then preparing them a warm meal, compliments of Connie and him. Enjoy, he urged them, but don't relax. Not yet. After the meal was finished and the dishes cleared away, who should walk in but Harvey Dungey, Clarence Roan, and a beaming Charlie Berger. You sure did a neat job, he said. That is one son of a bitch we won't have to worry about anymore. Pleased though he was, Berger was still not satisfied, because Carl Shelton continued to elude the Undertaker. Driving north, the party of six turned east at Mulkytown, and upon reaching Christopher they turned around, retraced their route, and ended up spending two hours in a roadhouse at Ward. A team of sorts, they were celebrating a victory. Then once again they were on the road, driving to Carbondale and from there back to Marion. At Marion, Berger asked bus driver Owen Barry if Carl Shelton had arrived from St. Louis. He had not been aboard, the driver said. While in town, Berger and Dungey talked with Arlie O. Boswell. They also had a talk with Lori Price. When they arrived at the cabin around midnight, the Newmans and Ritter were already there. We got that dough-bellied son of a bitch, didn't we? Berger crowed. Yes, that was a clever thing to do, Newman added. The actual performers of that clever trick were paid $50 each, and no doubt a few more glasses were raised to these heroes of the hour. Berger, Teddy Nurok, a roadhouse operator from Franklin County, and the Thomasons drove on to Harrisburg, where, using the name of James Madison, Harry signed the register at the Horning Hotel. Nurok scribbled John Winters as an alias. It is probable that Elmo eventually spent the night at Berger's home. Around 2 a.m., Berger and his three guests went to an uptown cafe, where, as planned, the Newmans and Ollie Potts were waiting. The weary young murderer, Harry Thomason, soon bade his friends good morning, and with his companions returned to the hotel. Five days later, Freddie Wooten, Harry Thomason, and Charlie Berger returned to Dowell and Berger's Buick Coupe. The incriminating Chrysler was towed from the garage to a field southwest of town, and after the battery and heater were removed, the car was burned. Next time. If we can just get over that hill, we got it made. But the water began to go into our noses. That was the longest trip I ever took in all my life. Oh.